We're going to read God's Word together, and we're reading this morning from the book of Genesis again, Genesis chapter 2, and reading from verse 4. This is the second account of creation. Let us hear the Word of God. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. There is gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the side of the Asher. And the name of the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. The Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Amen. And thanks be to God for God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word from Genesis, from all these years before, 
And we ask that by your spirit breathed into us, it might be life to our souls. Amen. Genesis 2 Verse 4 begins, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Actually, it's the second account because we've done all this in a different way in chapter 1. And that's left scoffers for generations looking at these two accounts and saying, ha, look at them, two accounts and they have a different order. The Bible contradicts itself. Can't trust it. It's not true. The problem with that, and maybe you've heard folks saying things like that, is you think about it for a minute. Whoever put these two accounts together when Genesis was formed must have noticed. It wasn't bothered. As if the person was saying to us and God's word was saying by God's spirit, Actually, this isn't about the order, as if it was a science book. And so the two different orders aren't an accident or a mistake. They are deliberate. It's Scripture not giving us the order of how things were made, but asking us and inviting us into a deeper question. Why? What does this all mean? Who are we? It's as if chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit saying to us through the Word of God, let me put it a different way. And every preacher knows what it is to repeat, to express it differently. Genesis, here's a shocking statement, is true. It is 100% utterly and completely in every word And I want to suggest something beyond that. I want to suggest that every human being on this planet knows that it is true. Not in the sense of the numbers of days or the names of Adam and Eve or in a literal tree or anything like that, but much more fundamentally, what is underneath all of this? What is coming through these words of God? Things that we know in our hearts because we are part of that creation are true. This world is wonderful. It is ordered, it is beautiful, and it is wonderful. It has meaning and it has purpose. And whether people say that they believe that or say that they don't, they act as if it's true because it is true. Every sunset, every chocolate, every fingerprint, every nebula, every spider's web says the same thing. God made it and it is good. I mean, how can you look at a sunset and say, oh, well, that just happened? And how can you eat chocolate and think there's not a God? I don't get that. If there's more chocolate in the world with less Richard Dawkins. And yet at the same time as we look at this world and we know that it has order and meaning because we live that way, Every time we encounter a grieving parent or a lonely child, every time a village goes hungry 
or a marriage descends into abuse. Something deep within us says that that should not be. Yeah? That should not be. But here's the thing. Every time you cry out injustice, every time you have a sense of right and of wrong, every time you have a conviction that we can do better, every time you're determined to fix a world that is broken, what you're implying is that the world as we experience it in all of its beauty isn't the world as it should be. Are you with me? So it's true. There was an ordered, beautiful creation but the world we live in is not where it should be. You see, if we see all of this just happen by chance and atoms and evolutionary processes, and it has no meaning and a purpose, how can you say it should not be like this? How the hell can you feel outraged if it's all just the survival of the fittest anyway? If that's all there is to it? But the truth is, not just the Word of God, but our own psychology and the way every human lives testifies that we were made to be different. That we were made to experience it different. And every time we see beauty and love and care, we are catching glimpses of Eden. We are catching glimpses of God's intention for our humanity that is somehow today broken. We'll look at chapter 3 next week with all of its talk of loss and fall and of hope. But today I just want to look at chapter 2. At the world as it was supposed to be. To ask what it says about God and about us. Notice chapter 3. Verse 4 begins by saying, oops, there. that's better. The Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now, what I'm going to do for the next couple of minutes is I'm going to do a wee bit of geeky Hebrew Bible um, linguistic stuff. So if that's, your, if that's really goes over your head, that's okay. You can ignore the next few minutes. But what I found is quite a lot of folk find this interesting. It says the Bible says there, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, it just says God. God did this. God made that. God made the next thing. But when you come to chapter 2, it always refers to God as the Lord God. And you see again, those scoffers come in and go, ha! Different. Must be two different authors and they didn't connect with each other as if whoever put it together hadn't noticed. The word God translates the Hebrew word Elohim, and it simply means the deity. It's used in lots of religions of the time period. But the word Lord God is, is, is different. If you notice very carefully when you look at a Bible, most translations have Lord with capital letters. Not just the first letter capital, but all four of the letters, L-O-R-D, in capital and that's because it's not translating the normal Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai. It's translating a different word, a four-letter word in Hebrew. Now, this word is very hard to pronounce. Very hard to pronounce because Hebrew doesn't have any vowels, so you have to make up the sounds, or you have to know them. And the problem is we don't really know how the Jewish people of the time 
pronounced this word because they thought it was so holy that no one should see it. So they just said, the, the name. The name. Older translations spell out the four letters, put in the vowels, and they come up with Jehovah. Most modern scholars think it's pronounced rather Yahweh. Yahweh. And what it is in Genesis 2 is it is God's own name. God's personal name. It's the name that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush when he said, tell them Yahweh sent you. I am. And what it is saying in Genesis 2 is the author wants to say to us, the book wants to say to us, the Spirit wants to say to us, you know, it isn't just about you're made and, and you relate to God because he made you like, you know, made in China, stamp. You relate to God because God is relational. God has a name. And there's something about chapter 2 that talks about relationship. Verse 7. It says, the Lord God, again, see the word Lord, Lord God formed a man from the dust of the earth and breathed his, into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We are made of dust. We are mortal. We are part of creation. We are part of the muck of the earth. There's no getting away from that. We are born of dust. We till the dust. We return to the dust. We cannot escape the physical world. And yet, this says we are formed by God himself. We are formed. The word is used is of a potter making a pot, of an artist shaping it, of God getting his hands dirty, of all the things that he'd made generically as God. Here he is, the Lord God, investing in this part of his creation, making it, putting it together. Psalm 139 puts it this way, you created me in my inner being, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and I am wonderfully formed, wonderfully made. We are dust, but we are special. We are special, Genesis 1 says, because we're made in the image of God. Genesis 2, because God shaped us and made us and then he breathed into our nostrils. You go to Rome and to the Sistine Chapel, there is a portrait of God creating humanity. There it is, Michelangelo's great picture of creation, of God putting his spark. But when I read Genesis there and thought of, of God breathing in, a different image came of, of a parent with a child. You know when you've got your child or your grandchild there face to face and you can feel the breath. And it's almost that relationship as God takes this thing that he's formed and he breathes into its nostrils. There's life. And what this tells us about life is it's not just that it has a heart and a pulse and, uh, and no tail, but we're made for relationship with God. That's our purpose and our meaning. We're physical. We're part of the planet we're dependent on it, and yet far more. You know, this idea, though, that we're part of the planet, we're part of the dust, is vitally important, particularly as we think about the creation just now and we think about the climate, 
the environment that we live in and the impact that we have on it. Prince William said something this week, and not often I, I quote a royal because they tend to stick to, to fairly safe and bland things, but he said something that, that struck me. He said this, we need some of the world's greatest brains and minds fixed on trying to repair this planet, not trying to find the next place to go and live. Now, it's really interesting. First of all, notice, fix this planet. See, what William's doing there, he doesn't even notice it, is he's assuming that Eden, isn't he? There is something to be fixed. There's a way it should be, and there's a way it is. That's back to what Genesis teaches. We, we just, we've just taken this in. We've stopped noticing it's come from the Bible. But secondly, when he's talking about not trying to go to the next place, he's actually having a go at a guy called Elon Musk and William Shatner and people that are trying to go into space. We shouldn't be spending all the billions going into space when we've got to fix things here. But as I read it, I began to think about something else. Because perhaps that's a criticism that sometimes the church has been too busy trying to go to the next place rather than looking at this place. Too busy talking about souls going to heaven to actually fix on the earth. Too busy thinking about angels to try to look at what's here. I hope we don't do that. Because when God came to save, he didn't come and take us away to a spiritual plane. He sent his son. Word made flesh. To walk the earth to die physically, and to rise bodily. Salvation in the Bible is very, very physical. It's not shooting off into heaven or, or, or going to be an angel or, or, or going off into the clouds. It's something else. In fact, we put it in the creed in this way. We believe our hope in the resurrection of the body and the life eternal. Life everlasting. It's a physical hope. And by the way, can I really suggest when we're talking about our hope in an afterlife, and we do hope in an afterlife, that we get this word right. I hear folks saying things like, Granny's going to be a star. No, she's not. If we're going to give our children hope, let's find the right words. We believe in the resurrection. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so too, says Paul, will we who die in him rise again, bodily, physically, as God will come and he will sort this world out so that we in resurrected bodies can live in hope and in flesh. Let's not tell fairy stories when we have a fantastic biblical hope in the life everlasting. Life is God's great gift. Our body, our world, it's our point and a purpose. And then we move into a garden. I was thinking about garden. God plants the garden and he, he says to Adam, go and work it. Take care of it. He's putting you in the garden to work and to take care, to serve it, to protect it, to till it and to guard it. Now, if, if you've got a garden, you'll know that there's two aspects to it. There's a brilliant creative aspect to a garden, isn't it? You can plant it and you can, you can put a path down and you can plant this, that, and borders. I'm not really a great gardener, so I don't know about all these things, but you, you can plan it, in, and you can watch it grow, and you can, you can have all sorts of imaginations and, and fulfillments in that, but there's also a work bit in there as well. You have to protect it, because if you don't do the work, then the weeds will take over. The chaos will come back into the order. 
It's the same with God's creation. We are to be creative, to enjoy it, to see it flourish, but we're also to protect it, to keep it safe. It's as if God says to human beings, here's my garden, go and enjoy it. Be creative in it, see what you can do with it. You're wonderful, I made you wonderful. Go and see what you can do, but by the way, look after it, will you? Protect it, take care of it. Serve and protect. Toil and keep it safe. Freedom, but responsibility. And the next part of the Genesis story almost puts that the same way. Freedom, but responsibility. Freedom, but there are limits. And with limits, there are consequences. And it's put this way in the next part. There you are. You can eat any tree, but don't eat that one. And the imagery here, I I think, is saying to us, you know, there are limits. Just like when you get some, some new thing that's been created, you read the instructions, or you should do, guys. Women tend to read instructions. Guys don't. Is that just my sexism? Is that, that happened in other houses as well? I don't know. But it always says don't do certain things, and that's not because they're trying to spoil your fun. It's because, actually, you'll get the best out of it if you follow the instructions. Now, God says, if you eat the fruit, if you transgress the limits, you will die. And we say, I write. Then we build an atom bomb. Biological weapons. And we pushed the ground beyond its limit. We took too many fish. We mined too much coal. We filled the lakes with plastic. What followed? Freedom with limits. Not every freedom, economically, biologically, sexually, relationally, is good for us. Goldfish, which is liberated from the bowl and the water, does not get to enjoy its freedom. If we ignore God's word, if we try to write the rules of good and evil for ourselves, Genesis 1 tells us that we are to serve creation. Genesis 2 says serve and protect it. Then we find it all goes wrong. And then the next thing that Genesis 2 talks about is is relationships. God says it, it is not good for a man or a woman or any human being to be alone. And now, if we think, oh gosh, that's not true. We actually quite being alone. I like being alone. Well, try social isolation for 18 months. How was it? Wasn't it good, was it? Loneliness is pretty awful. We are supposed to live in community. And again, we don't need to argue whether Genesis is true at this point because we know it's true. We experience it's true. It's not good. So this is basic in Genesis, how we should relate to God, how we should relate to the world, and now how we should relate to each other. Now, There are some dangers with Genesis. We we said last week that Genesis 1, when it says rule over the earth, has sometimes been taken by people to exploit the earth. And the same way some of these texts in Genesis 2 have been taken to allow for hierarchies and even misogyny. But again, I would say let's read them again and see what God is saying. God made us male and female. Genesis 1 says male and female equally in the image of God. 
Genesis 2, in its picture language, says, but differently, they complement each other. This is important. I will make a suitable helper for him. Now, again, this word has been misused because sometimes it's read by folk who want to say, yes, a woman is there to assist the man, like some helper, like some servant. That's actually not what Genesis says because when you take that word helper in Hebrew and you look at where else it's used in the Old Testament, it is almost always used of God. The Lord is my helper. That doesn't mean he's my little assistant or my skivvy or my, 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 my sort of look after me. It means that actually I need him. It means that actually he's there for me. My encourager that brings life. The story goes on a little bit comically because then it has Adam bringing all, all, all the animals and he has to give them all a name. The zoological parade. Cat. Dog. Ugh, snake. Porcupine. Where did they come up with that one? Midge. You can see it. It's interesting, actually, because early science, anyone who knows a bit about the history of science, started with people going out into the world and classifying everything, naming everything, giving them big long tags. Start here. Human beings actually exploring and naming the world. But there is no suitable companion for the man. By the way, not even a dog. You know you dog lovers? There's a limit. Dogs are great. No. And so we are told God made woman. Now, this isn't about the order of creation. This is about, as Genesis says, both in the image of God, Genesis 2 talks about another ideal of that relationship that we are created for. And this isn't just about marriage, actually. This is about men and women complementing each other in different ways. And we know that when a workplace is healthy, it has the male and the female working together well, not one ruling over the other. When a church is healthy, it, it, it is cross-gendered. We, we work together and we, we bring something that's different in our difference as well as our sameness. It's interesting, one of the commentators says of the story of the rib, Matthew Henry, this is writing some centuries ago, he wrote this, Eve is made not out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled by him, but made out of his side to be with him, under his arm to be protected by him, near his heart to be loved. Not bad for a biblical commentator. You could almost put that on a Valentine card, couldn't you? The point is simply that men and women complement each other, literally are incomplete. Now this is, it is true, a picture of, of marriage, but as I said, it's about far more than that. It's about all of human society. It, it, it's interesting that verse 24, this is why a mother by a man leaves his father and his mother and is united with his wife and they become one flesh. When I'm, I'm preparing couples for marriage, I always come back to that verse. Not just because it's true, but because it's true in a, in, in a really helpful pastoral way. When a man or a woman leaves their father and mother and gets married, they leave. And there's quite a few parents-in-law that need to hear that. They need to let go. How many a marriage has been twisted because the parents didn't let go? And we've all had a little bit of that. Good advice. This is the truth of Genesis. 
So marriage and gender are part of God's order. This is what it's saying. But it's interesting, and again, I, I could say an awful lot more about this, which I'm not going to, but I'm just going to say one thing, because if you're not married, you're maybe sitting thinking, go oh, gosh. It's really, really important also to put this, that in the New Testament, we see the perfect image of God. Not in a married couple, but in Jesus. And he wasn't married. That too needs to be part of the balance that we see in Scripture. And remember also that this picture that we're seeing here is not the world as it is. Marriages are not all like that. But it is that sense of what we want. What it ought to be. What it was made to be. It's important to remember that as we look at these texts, we experience a world that is broken, and we look to its repair in Jesus. A vision of what the world was supposed to be is here. Human beings shaped and made by God, serving and protecting His creation. Genders working together, helping and complementing sexuality without guilt or shame. But it's not the way the world is. The last few weeks we've watched the trial of the chap. I'll not just I'll not give him a name. Who murdered Sarah Everett. And it's stuck all of our hearts, isn't it? An absolute abomination. He was a cop. What are they supposed to do? Serve and protect. It's Genesis. Serve and protect. To bring order, to guard, to look after, not to bring chaos and hate. And the man supposed to make the world safe, doing the opposite. We recognize that this world is broken. We cannot wander back into Eden. Yet the Bible has more. For as it begins in a garden, and we will explore the garden more next week, we recognize our longing for the garden, the safe place of order. We recognize and we see glimpses of it in the world today in all its brokenness. But we also, in the Bible story, find that hope comes in the garden. For it was in another garden that a man made a choice. And the choice was to go God's way, to serve and protect, to become our helper, to help with the brokenness and the longing that we have. Jesus took the guilt and the shame and the damage upon himself, dying in our place, making the choice that we all get wrong. And then, in another garden, woman coming, full of grief at the injustice, at the pain, at the bereavement, coming with a sense that the world was wrong, that it should not be, that it should not happen like this. To find that all that yearning of creation that they felt, all that 
sense of the broken relationships that they knew, all the injustice that was there, all the abuse that they had experienced, were all met in him. And in the garden, they found him alive. And the promise that was there of a world healed and restored of a kingdom coming. And so we have this yearning for the world as it should be that it is not just now. And yet we are told in Jesus Christ this yearning leads somewhere to God's promise of restoration. And that is why we work and we struggle to make the world as it should be because we know that the Lord who gave us this groaning in our hearts will make the world as it should be, has made it and remade it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Him, there is hope and justice and peace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just bring this to you just now. We have that groaning, for we see the beauty and we know the pain. Oh Lord, put in our hearts that command to protect and to serve all that you have entrusted to us. But put in our hearts also that hope that you give us, that the groaning of our hearts will be met in Jesus Christ. Amen.